Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Creation and Chaos, Part 3, recorded in September 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. If we go along in that story a little further, we go to Genesis 6, we'll find uh, that chaos does indeed enter into the world, except not through uh, a sea serpent or a chaotic monster or anything like that. Rather, it enters into the world through us and some animals who happen to be carnivorous. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, God commands that we should all be vegetarians, herbivores. Uh, He says, I've given you all the plants of the world to eat, humans and animals, gorge yourselves on them. Um, But then in Genesis 6, something goes awry. And there's no explanation of why this happens. It simply says, all the earth was corrupted before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Because all flesh, and that's a euphemism for at least human beings, but in this context, it becomes clear that it's human beings and animals. Because human beings and animals had corrupted their way on the earth. Um, how have they corrupted their way? They've corrupted their way through violence. So this is actually the priestly um, strand, as it's called, the priestly version of the Pentateuch, is actually terribly modern in the sense that it has no truck or very little truck with old-fashioned mythological concepts of disorder. The only thing left in a world that has been uh, demythologized is man. The only thing left capable of resisting God are human beings and, unfortunately, here are some animals who eat meat. Um, Violence, bloodshed, killing is chaos, says this author. Now, again, remember that this is a priest writing. What are priests? Priests are butchers. Their role is to slaughter animals, to spill the blood of the animals, to dispose ritually of the blood in a way that affects atonement, healing between God and humanity. Later on in in, uh, the story, we hear that the purpose of blood is for atonement, is for healing the relationship between God and human beings that has been damaged by sin. Um, But what is the primordial sin? The original sin, if you will, according to this author, is not eating from a fruit of a tree, because people already were like God in this version, but rather it's violence. And there are these other passages that talk about the importance of human beings not killing other human beings, and if human beings kill animals, they must drain the blood from them and not consume it uh, as a recognition for uh, uh, that this, that this is a, a power for life that comes from God. Um, so this is, in a sense, if you're a priest and your whole business is in slaughtering animals, uh, and you believe that the fundamental order of the universe is a peaceful, harmonious order, God said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. Remember Genesis 1? If that's your view of the world, and yet your whole purpose in life is to kill, that's a serious moral issue for you. Your creation story, your view of humanity, is going to be oriented around this issue that ultimately boils down to what you do in the temple. Okay, so we have chaos entering into the world later on in the story. So it isn't all that different 
from the other creation stories. It's just been displaced to a different part in the plot. And as we'll see next time when we talk about the creation of Israel, uh, both the priestly version and the other version that we're going to read, uh, talk about, both of these stories, the climax of chaos is actually uh, in history. It's the Pharaoh who tries to destroy Israel at the Red Sea. And again, God uses the sea as a tool to eliminate this force of chaos from the world. So the creation story in Genesis 1 is indeed unique in many ways. It is unlike anything else in the Bible, but the whole story of which is a part participates in the whole narrative of creation and chaos, creation alternating with chaos and God restoring order. And again, what is very distinctive of the priestly strand, the priestly way of thinking, is that it is human beings called to participate in God's own holiness who are going to be the ones with whom God sets the world to rights. Um, I'm going to move on to the other familiar creation story, and we'll conclude with this one. This is the so-called Garden of Eden story. Scholars call it, sorry, scholars call it the Yahwist creation story. It's called the Yahwist creation story because the author consistently refers to God as uh, Yahweh or Adonai. Uh, the other, the priestly author doesn't do that until much later. Uh, and so for, for lack of a better term, we call this guy the Yahwist. And uh, let's take that same principle. In the first line of a creation story, it will tell you what it's about. And let's see what this story is about. This is an alternate story, by the way. It's set after Genesis 1, but in the scheme of, of chronology, it doesn't happen later than Genesis 1. It's an alternative account of how human beings specifically and other parts of the world came into being. Whoever put this Bible together put these things side by side. They didn't choose one over the other. They didn't try to meld them together into one creation story. They let them be themselves. So let's see how this starts. Uh, when Adonai made the earth and the heavens, that was pretty quick, uh, there was no field shrub on earth. No grass of the field had sprouted for Adonai had sent no rain upon the earth, and there was no Adam to work the Adama. Adama is the word for soil. Okay, so what is this creation story about, do you think? There's no, um, there's no shrubbery. And if you know Monty Python's Flying Circus, you know all about shrubbery. Uh, there's no shrubbery. There's no grass of the field. Um, why would we be interested in grass of the field? What, where? Sorry, what? Grain. What are the grains that we eat? They're grass of the field that we've domesticated. Okay, so there's no shrubs. There's no grain. There's, there's no uh, grain-bearing grass. There's no rain to water any of this. Now, there actually is water, but it's not rainfall. And there's no Adam. There's no human being to work the Adama. Uh, Adama, again, is arable soil. Notice that the word for human being is very similar to the word for soil, the soil that people work, they farm. So what is this creation story about? It's not about the creation of order out of chaos in a three-decker universe. What is it? What's this, what, what is this story about? Can we guess? Well, it is the creation of man, but, but what, are, what are human beings created to be here? Workers, farmers, 
Totally different from Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we're created to rule, to have dominion over creation, to share in the noble task of, uh, of the ongoing task of you know, maintaining order in the universe. None of that here. We're not here to rule, we're here to work. We're workers and we're agricultural laborers. Now, this is a, a very accurate description of ancient Israel. We may imagine ancient Israel from some of the stories to be sort of Bedouin nomads until they settle the land of Canaan. But in fact, archaeologically, we know uh, that when Israel becomes visible to the archaeological record, they are already farmers. And where would you, how would you sustain agriculture in the highlands of Canaan, where there are no great rivers to irrigate your fields? You have to rely on rain. Rainfall agriculture is the source of life for ancient Israel. And at all periods of, it, of the history of Israel, Israelites were farmers. So you could, you know, you can translate, uh, you can't call this Adam, because Adam, Adam is not a proper name. Later on it can be, it will be used as a proper name, but here it's not a proper name. It's an anthropological term. It's a, it's a designation for the human being, what it means to be human. And what does it mean to be human? It means to be a farmer. You can even translate Adam as farmer as you, if you like. I mean, it would be sort of a translation by sense, but it would actually capture the whole essence, the whole point of it. Human beings are created to work the land as, as rainfall agriculturalists. Now, none of this has happened yet. So... By the end of the creation story, we should expect at least some of these conditions to be present. In fact, only one of them is present by the end of Genesis 3, and that's the last one. There is an Adam to work the Adama. At the end of the story, it says uh, God expels the Adam from his garden to work the Adama from which he was formed. So there's a nice inclusio for this story. It begins and ends with the same theme. Uh, by Genesis 3, there's still no rainfall. We have to wait for the flood for that. After the flood in this version, God promises at the end, I'll never, I'll never wipe you out again. And uh, the cycle of seasons, including the rainy season, will continue forever. So really, this creation story doesn't end until Genesis 9, Genesis 8 or 9. But the basic theme is already enunciated. This is not about order from chaos in the priestly sense. This is about rainfall agriculture. It's about bread and butter issues, folks. Okay, so with that in mind, let's explore. Um, let's actually put in our minds the order of creation here. God forms the Adam out of the Adamah. He forms him out of the, out of the dust or the dirt of the soil breathes life into him so that he breathes, uh, he's a living being. Then God plants a garden. What kind of garden is this? It's not a vegetable garden, it's an orchard, right? There are trees in this garden. And the kind of garden that's being represented is actually a royal garden. Uh, we know this from many of the ancient Near Eastern monarchies. The monarchs loved gardens. Think of Versailles, the gardens of Versailles. Even in modern days, you know, the, one of the ways in which a monarch represents or projects his or her idea of him or herself as one who has mastery over his or her environment, both the social and political, as well as the natural environment, is to create a garden. These are ordered gardens with you know, neatly trimmed rows and flowers you know, to really show that you have mastery over nature. That's what kings loved to do. And that's 
what God as a king is out to do. He's out to have his own royal garden. So he creates a worker and he puts the worker in his garden. Later on, we discover that um, Adonai notices that it's not good for the worker to be alone, so he tries to get a companion for him, and he creates the animals. Notice how this is a different order than Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we had plants, animals, humans, male and female created simultaneously. Here we have man, garden, animals, and woman created at the end of that sequence. Different sequence. Um, And there's much more reflection on... Uh, well, there's a great mystery in this one, of course. In Genesis 1, you know, God says, procreate and dominate. The people know what they're supposed to do. In here, though, the whole notion of procreation is entirely mysterious until the end of the story. So actually, the woman doesn't get a name until the man figures out uh, why the plumbing is different. What is this for? Now that we are being cursed <laughs> and being sent out to live a hard life, an agricultural life, well, you need a lot of people to farm enough land to produce enough seed, enough grain to sustain yourself. This is not true of hunter-gatherer societies. And hunter-gatherer societies, children are, are not, many children are not desirable because it, it keeps you from moving. But in an agricultural society, you need to have not only producing grain, you have to be reproducing children. And so when you get to that part about the curse on the snake and then the woman and then the ground... It's all about the foundation of the relationships that make agriculture possible. And it's only then that the guy figures out, oh, her name is Chalah, Eve, which sounds like the word Chai, living thing, because she's the mother of all living things. We're going to reproduce. So a lot of the same things happen to human beings by the end of both of these creation stories, but they get there in very different ways. Um, But we're skipping ahead. We want to say something about the trees. Very interesting tree. Um... In the garden, right, there are these two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and bad or good and evil. Uh, The tree of life, interestingly, is later associated in the book of Proverbs with wisdom. Uh, Now, the fruit of the tree makes you immortal, right? That's that's what we learn about from Genesis. Uh, Proverbs says, happy are those who find wisdom and those who get understanding because she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called happy. Uh, Adonai, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens by his knowledge. And uh, the deeps were broke open and the clouds dropped upon the dew. Creation, wisdom, tree of life, it all fits together. Okay, so we have that tree. The humans aren't supposed to... It says, you don't have to... You can eat that tree if you want, he says. You just can't eat from the other tree, which is the knowledge of good and bad. This is a much more debatable expression. We're not sure exactly what the knowledge of knowing good and bad means, but it's an expression that appears elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, This is both in the book of 2 Samuel, which is about David and his dynasty. Uh, One person speaks to David saying, my lord, the king is like the messenger of God, discerning good and bad. So apparently, whatever good and bad means, it's something that is a sort of prerogative of God that only a king perhaps could be so wise to have. Uh, An old guy Uh, One of David's allies says, Today I'm 80 years old. Can I know what is good and bad? He's being sort of self-effacing here. Um, So whatever it means, uh, it's something that in the context of the creation story, people aren't supposed to have. Or at least they're not supposed to have without an instruction booklet. And actually, wisdom literature is the instruction booklet, it turns out, later on. But we know how it turns out. The talking snake. 
right? The talking snake uh, begins to, uh, to meddle with things. What is the talking snake? Well, of course, in later tradition, the talking snake is identified with Satan, or the devil, right? The, the divine being who God sends to test human beings. And in the developed notion of, at least with the Western Christian tradition, uh, the devil is there to, uh, to literally um, resist and, and rebel against God. The devil becomes, in a sense, in this interpretation, the chaos monster. So in this sense, by the second century AD, after, after the Bible has sort of all been written, the church fathers, and I believe the rabbis too speculated about this, but the church fathers, starting with Justin Martyr, begin to identify the snake with Satan. But there's none of this yet. In, in Genesis itself, the snake is simply an, one of the animals of the field that, that uh, God created in order to create a companion for the man. Boy, it's a good thing that he didn't pick this one, right? Um, now, why a snake? Well, it's, we're told that the snake is the most cunning of every animal of the field that God made. The word for cunning, arum, in Hebrew is a homonym. It sounds a lot like the word for naked, which this is in chapter 3, verse 1. In the very previous verse, we were told that the human beings, uh, the man and his woman, were naked and they didn't know it. They were arum. And then the very next verse, we're told the snake is arum. So he's cunning, but cunning also has something to do with nakedness. Why would you call a snake naked? What do snakes do that make them sort of naked? They shed their skins, right? And they look all glossy. In the ancient Near East, snakes were symbols of immortality because they keep getting young again, right? That's what the, the imagery suggests. So it's not coincidental that uh, you know, how people lost the chance for immortality is tied up with a snake. In one of the earliest pieces of human literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which is from Mesopotamia. There's a famous story where Gilgamesh, the hero, is, is going on a quest to save his friend Enkidu from mortality. And he finds this plant that gives you uh, immortality. And on the way home to bring it to his dying friend, he puts the plant down by a pool and goes to sleep to, for a nap. And unfortunately, there was a snake in the pool. The snake comes up, gulps the plant down. Uh, humanity loses its chance at immortality. And the snake becomes immortal, Right? So that's that idea, that, that, that the, the snake is a fitting symbol for immortality and, in this case, the loss of it by human beings. Um, and so we know what happens, right? The snake uh, tricks uh, the woman. The woman offers it the demand. The man says, sure, let's have some of that fruit. And uh, then we have you know, this discussion of the sin, their sin. Uh, and even here, our friend, uh, the author of the Book of Wisdom, has something to say. It actually says that wisdom protected the first formed father of the world when he alone had been created. She delivered him from his transgression and gave him strength to rule all things. Well, that's not in Genesis. But it's actually in rabbinic Jewish interpretation of this story because the rabbis noticed that God said, if you eat from this fruit, you'll die. But guess what? They don't die, do they? So how can we account for that? Well, maybe God meant death in a metaphorical sense. No, said the rabbis, God said you'll die, and they didn't die. So how do we account for the fact that the, the man and his woman survive, at least? The rabbinic answer is that they performed teshuvah, they repented. And that is reflected in this text where it says wisdom protected, wisdom helped him, right, survive. Uh, but in any case, things go to hell in a handbasket, or perhaps humans just become human, right? Because the whole point of the story is to explain the origins of the way things are, right? Human beings 
forced not to work in a, in a royal pleasure garden, but to work uh, for their bread, their daily bread. Uh, women uh, in a disproportionate uh, position of authority in the new agricultural setup, men being constantly uh, harassed by thorns and thistles and all that. It's, it's a story about how we came, became the way we are. Um, so again, there is chaos in this story, but it's, it's of a very peculiar quality. Again, the snake doesn't really become a, a chaos monster. God doesn't try to defeat the snake. He just, you know, shuts the snake up and makes him go, you know, go away, basically. Um, but, it, but it's even, there's maybe even some tongue in cheek in here, folks. I mean, this is a God who, now the God of Genesis 1, by the way, is omniscient, very clearly. He knows Everything he's doing, everything he says is good, good, good. He's totally in control. The God of the Yahwist, it's not actually clear what he knows, except that he knows good and evil. Right? That's very clear. Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing good and evil. Let's not them, let them get that fruit from the other tree and be immortal like us, too. So the theology of this, of this author, the theology we can actually deduce from what's in the story is that God knows good and evil. He knows what's good and bad. And he acts upon that. So he sees that it's bad that the man is alone. He acts to create a companion. Later on in the story, God will see his people being forced uh, to be laborers for an unjust ruler in which their labor is even harsher than it should be. This is the Pharaoh, and he chooses to act. So good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, is also the knowledge of justice and the will to act upon it. Uh, so God certainly has that characteristic. But uh, does he have foreknowledge? Well, he makes every animal on the planet only to find that none of them work, right, as a companion. So he creates the woman. Um, you know, if, if, we, if we didn't know better, if we, didn't, if we didn't have a doctrine in our head that says God is omniscient, we might think this God isn't quite omniscient, that he actually is willing to enter into creation and share in the challenge of learning how to live with his creation uh, and actually, by the first time that he actually says he knows what the future will be is when he talks to Moses and he says, the Pharaoh will not let my people go. He knows how human beings are at this point. But that's sort of a sideline issue. But in any case, it's a very peculiar creation story because the chaos, such it is, emerges not from one of the Leviathans or that, but it comes from a snake, one of God's own animals that was created to be a friend of the humans, Right? So it's a very peculiar story. And, of course, that, that peculiarity perhaps is one of the things that attracts so much later interpretive attention by later church fathers and rabbis. What was that snake? What was he actually up to? And then we have the, the further development of this into the notion of testing uh, and original sin and all this. But I'm going to stop there because I wanted just to focus on this uh, idea of how different these stories are from the other ones that I talked about earlier. Let's have a uh, question and answer and comments. Yes, please. So the question was uh, this, I, this, this question of the sacredness of life and, and, and under what circumstances can human beings take animal life? Is that a, is that a common concern among either ancient cultures or non-Western cultures in general, the answer is yes. If you look at, uh, in many hunter-gatherer cultures, every killing of an animal for food is a sacred event. You know, there's a ceremony with it. You thank the animal for the life it's given. Uh, and in the priestly 
source that we were talking about when you get to Mount Sinai, when the rules for living are presented, one of the rules is that all slaughter of animals is sacred slaughter. That is to say, even if you, um, unless you're hunting maybe and you just can't get access to it, if you kill an animal, you have to kill it in front of the tent, the tabernacle, the, the place of worship, so that even if you're just using it for your own private food, every act of killing any animal is an act of, it has to be connected and, rec- and, and recognizing uh, God. There's a, it has to be with reference to and with reverence for the creator and therefore for the whole of creation. So there's again definitely an ecological sort of theology underlying all of that. And I don't know a lot about other cultures of the time, but I would not be surprised if you could find comparable uh, ideas about the sacredness of life and the necessity of taking it at times, and if so, in what conditions. So, I mean, it, this is where we, we really need to sort of stop and get over ourselves about, well, this is weird ritual. Well, yeah, it's weird to us, but that's because we've lost this sense of the sacredness of all life. I mean, maybe we have this as sort of a, a moral abstraction, but how do you implement that in every facet of life? Um, here we find that's when, when the tour comes in. Thank you for coming, and I hope we'll see some of you next week. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio presents.